This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, casualties are rising in Ukraine and more civilians are being directly impacted by the war. Advocate Stepan Berko tells us he has now lost someone fighting on the front lines that's close to him. Why the war is getting deadlier and details the political picture in Ukraine in general. Hank the Hacker, an ethical hacker, gives us his two cents on Canada's new Digital Privacy Act. Does the bill cover enough ground with these new plans? Or are Canadians still at risk of falling victims to security breaches, either through the government, in business, and how are we protected? Reactionary moves in the world of technology. And are you okay with snakes on planes? Nope. Actually, that's not true. Snakes on Ferraris. All of this and more on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Well, since we're going back to work, why not terrify you a little bit with internet things? That's what we do. But we all need to know it. And in order to understand what's going on, let us continue our conversation that we were having before this started. Um, we've got something special here, which is new for our buddy. And so might as well just hit this now. All right, so it's Hank the Hacker here on The Shift. Hank Fordham, that's his dad's song. Um, happy Father's Day. I know your dad passed a couple years ago, Hank. I know it's a tough day, and I just want to acknowledge that uh, how special your dad is and your sharing of your dad with us, um, how important that's been for, for us and how honest it's been. So thank you for that. Oh, man, thank you, Shane. That means a lot to me. We were chatting before the show start, or before the segment started here about two-factor authentication. Let's just continue that conversation because everyone's going through that before we get into our plan topics here, Hank. Uh, Hank is a white hat hacker. That means he uh, gets hired by companies to go out and basically try to punch holes in their stuff and tell them, hey, by the way, <laughs> I can see your bathroom cameras or whatever. Uh, so it's not like that. But that being said, he's been on Dr. Phil and all kinds of things like that. And the uh, we two-factor authentication is hitting us everywhere. You got recently on Facebook, mandatory now. My banking is mandatory with a with a new uh, thing, which is so wild because now I can't even log into a browser unless I'm logged into the app. It's not even like texting. It's it's really happening everywhere now, isn't it? Oh yeah, and you know it's surprising because they were even the the Facebook notification I got. If they said if I didn't enable two factor authentication by July first, uh, my account would be deactivated and. Hmm. It's because of the, you know, the potential reach that I have. And I, I can only imagine that a few viewers and, and you guys might even see the notification soon as well if you don't have two-factor enabled already. Um, I'm not sure that yeah. I do. I might. But, I mean, with the size of the uh, Shiftheads group alone, as it continues to grow at shiftheads.ca, that Facebook group, I mean, that alone seemed to me seems to me to be a reason enough that they will do that. Now, two-factor authentication, yeah. all fairness, Hank, this is something you've been preaching with us on the shift for over a year, year and a half. And the reality is, is that it's finally here, but it's almost getting so out of control now. It's in, If you lose your phone, you're basically pooched. Well, yeah, I was I was thinking about that the other day too because I was switching from iPhone to Android, and oh, how dare you? Uh, I I completely wiped the iPhone before swap uh, swapping over to the new device, and 
there goes all my Google Authenticator stuff, you know? So it it's that I had to go and chase that all down and figure that out. But I was even talking to one of my other friends and, and she's really privy with technology as well. She's she's a, a cybersecurity specialist as well, but um, she lost her, her Yubi keys. <laughs> so she can't access any of her accounts because she lost the physical authentication token that lets her access the account. Wow. So is there a way to get it back? Does it take time? What do you have to do? I mean, there's there's recovery steps, but you, you can imagine and you've probably experienced how how tedious it can be. And like you said, once you lose your phone, you lose access to so many accounts and the recovery processes. Some companies might have a zero tolerance policy, which we've seen before. And some companies might be a little more willing to work through that, but it's it's always a little bit tedious. And especially now when everyone's trying to figure out how that works and how, how to implement it. Should we be talking about how easy it is to steal someone's phone number in today's world when it comes to just migrating a phone number and, and fake identity and literally just filing the paperwork and moving it over? Oh, never, never mind stealing a phone number, but the ability for someone, and, and this is a little bit of a, a kind of, you know, we've heard about it a little bit in the news before, but um, with SIM swapping attacks where someone can actually duplicate your, your phone number if you're using a SIM card. And uh, that that's why companies are trying to lean away from uh, SMS-based two-factor authentication because it, it's not that hard for a hacker to manipulate telecommunications and i think that's also one of the reasons we're seeing telecommunications as a part of the the new bill c26 that we saw well let's talk about uh, bill c26 and all the other pieces of the puzzle um the the quote at globalnews.ca says ottawa's cybersecurity bill has good bones but secrecy rules need work experts say how are the bones hank the hacker are they good bones you know, I couldn't agree more with that statement. And like, while I think that there's a lot of good that comes from this new bill and passed, like especially banning Huawei and companies similar to it from having any kind of chance of entering critical Canadian infrastructure. I remember we actually had an interview, I think it was maybe even over a year ago, speaking about Huawei entering Canada. So it's it's nice to see now that that that's not going to happen. And um, but at the same time, I think that it also creates massive new privacy concerns with things like the increased access to confidential information that this will grant the Canadian government, um, and also you know the lack of transparency around some of the implications of the bill. Uh, it, it seems like the right move in some senses, but I think it's really important that they they approach this cautiously and you know develop a balance of secrecy, accountability, and transparency. So I'm going to play for the sake of the conversation anyway. A little bit of devil's advocate. If the bad guys can just simply walk up to us and scan us or Google us or whatever, buy info on the dark web and steal our stuff. Why are we worried about the government having the same stuff? You know, I think it's a valid argument, but like the, the concern in, in my point of view anyways, really relies or lies in the fact that 
if there if there is a security breach and you know let's say that your your information does become um you, you know forbid does become one of those batches of of pieces of information being sold on the dark web and because of this new bill the company or whatever you know whatever regulator or financial institution that was involved in this breach isn't able to make you aware of that because they're kind of being you know gagged in terms of being able to speak about whatever directions that they've been given in terms of dealing with this compromise and so for you know for a long time you might have customers that have their information now exposed on the deep web but aren't aware of it because some of the the rules that are being made by the government and uh and and it also you know it brings in concern with how they get to choose how they're going to deal with that and nobody gets to know about what they did when they dealt with that or what access any of the any of the inspectors had to your information or any of your right. transactions, for example. Now, I and I don't know how granular you got with this info. If you don't have the answer to the question, that's fine. I couldn't quite figure it out either because I was reading someone else's reporting on the bill, right? I haven't actually read the entire bill because I don't believe I would understand all of it. But in some of the reporting, that the bill says that businesses have to report when they have breaches, right? So most people are hearing that as that's good news because now we have to find out. I mean, I've got three of the searches on that website you say to go search that, you know, three apps that I was never notified. You know, one was the uh, RunKeeper app from Under Armour. And so Mm -hmm. you would think that I would get notified of those breaches. I was never notified. But my understanding in this bill, and I couldn't quite figure this part out, was are they required to notify the users but the way it was worded, I was like, I think they just actually have to notify the government. I'm not quite sure they actually have to notify the users. You know, when I first heard about this bill, I got excited. I was like, what a step in the right direction. And because now we won't have that where you go to search your email on have I been pwned and all of a sudden you've got so many breaches that you never heard about until so many years down the road. It, it, at average, you don't hear about your information being leaked until three years after it happens. And so that's why I was so excited. But with this new bill, they're only obligated to report it to the communication security establishment, to the government. And uh, and at that, they're not allowed to, you know, in, in some cases, I'm sure there's some complexities here, but they're not allowed to, uh, for example, communicate with investors and and that and users and let them know that there was a breach that happened. Uh, in in some cases, they have less power now to make a disclosure to their user base than they would have before, if they're a regulator that's involved in something like finance, um, electricity, transportation, uh, you know, things like that. Well, I'm glad that you said the investors part, because here's the thing that gets me. And I don't want to step out of my lane about things that I don't understand. Again, I'm being very cautious with this conversation. Publicly traded companies, right? Um, any any shareholder company, if you become exposed, that's what uh, is commonly said in a boardroom, what is our exposure? And so uh, I... Th- 
if you can't answer that question, and if there's possibility that you've been hacked, and you've got a hundred million dollars of potential liability out there because of lawsuits, investors need to know that, because if investors are continuing to buy the stock for, like you said, maybe average of three years before before people find out, you're buying into a company that has a one hundred million dollar exposure that you don't know about. That's not included on the books. And that to me is the scary part, because if that's the case, if I'm understanding this properly and I'm happy to correct it if I'm not, but if that's the case, that means that the top secrecy of the government is far more important, which is okay. Maybe we could debate that and figure that out. Then people investing their life savings into a business that has vulnerability that you can't be disclosed to about. I couldn't agree more. And, and, you know, as like a, really good example or maybe a poor one depending who you're speaking to i think i i look at some of these isps that i was i was reading an article about this and someone mentioned like it was a really good point some of these smaller isps are going to have a really hard time keeping up with this bill because they won't be able to afford the you know the being compliant and, and having the cybersecurity practices in place to deal with this. And so you're going to end up with, I think you're exactly right, with people investing in a company that, you know, not only may have um, suffered from a breach, but might not also be in the position to afford dealing with that breach. So you, yeah. you could be dealing with a ticking time bomb in some senses. I suppose it would be not much different than um, investing in a car company that has a massive recall that crushes them financially. I suppose that would be similar cost of business. But if they already knew about the recall and you still didn't tell investors that, by the way, they're going to have a billion dollar recall, you know, that that's cash call city. And that's that's very scary. So a remarkable at least it's a start question mark. I mean, I was in the Ottawa airport. And I, I had the, uh, the, the, uh, the opportunity. I sat next to a lawyer on the way, uh, and this really nice lady who we just chatted about all kinds of things. And she's mostly, she's doing family law now. She used to be doing corporate law. And, and she had said about, we were talking about some of these things just sort of all around the gamut of, of topics. I said, I said to her, I said, this has always been the killer to me because she flies to Ottawa all the time that when you used to go to the baggage claim in Ottawa, it was sponsored by Huawei for like a couple of years. And I used to get a kick out of that because you come down this escalator and then you're like, you walk into this giant wall of like ad wall of TVs. It's very pretty. And it was all Huawei. And I'm like, this seems really ironic to me in Ottawa. It's not anymore. It's sponsored by Bell now. It's much nicer, but I found that ironic. And this attitude, um, this complacent attitude, is this the start of the shift away from that complacent attitude or is this too little too late? How do you see this? I mean, you're a hacker. You know what people are truly capable of. I, you know, I'm, I saw this coming and I think it's definitely, I, I, I'm confident that it's a step in, in the right direction. I don't, I don't think it's too little too late, but I think that now is definitely the time to act on, you know, I get, I get that with new acts and whatever being brought in, it, there's kind of a trial period or whatever, you're going to get feedback, but I think it's very important that they act on that feedback and not only with, um, you know, the government cybersecurity plan in mind, but also with the public's best interest in terms of making people aware that they've been a part of a breach or, you know, if, if, if my bank was hacked, I would want to know about that. Um, yeah. 
And I, I think that's the balance that they need to find. So I think it's a really good start. And I agree with this statement. I think it's a very good bones uh, behind the act, but um, I, I think it needs to be massaged a little bit. When we look at corporations, corporations have all kinds of different um, access points in today's world, right? Most people are operating on a VPN and those VPNs are using authenticator. They're using at least a two-factor authentication, but usually authenticator code on top of that. Sometimes authenticator code and a text. Some people, it's a FOB, USB FOB. I know that some of our older folks who are listening have never had to work in that highly tech world of today, you know, that's going to your laptop and you not only do you have to have your username, you have to have your password, then you have to have an app on your phone to authenticate and you have to have the USB fob in at the same time to get into all these things. So it can be grossly inconvenient to get in and out of your work stuff. The idea is to keep it safe. They used to have those timers. Remember those 30 second timers that would give you a new code every 15 seconds or 30 seconds. I was right about to mention that. I was like the USB with the new code every time or the. Yeah. And then, oh God. And then if you didn't get the code in fast enough, it didn't work. And geez. (laughs) Yeah. But the, um, and it was like a, it was like an old, uh, monochromatic watch is what those things looked like. It was terrible, but they're trying to keep people out. Now, is the government going to go through that? Is it going to get worse before it gets better on our convenience level of these things? I mean, they're relying on the banks to get into our tax stuff, you know, secure key and all those things. Is it going to get more inconvenient for us before it gets better? Well, I think time will tell. And by that, I mean, you know, we, we heard Microsoft, I, th- I think they first announced that they wanted to really go passwordless and lean towards biometrics in 2018. And... Uh, so I think that as we see, again, with that trial period, as we see companies try and uh, you know, figure out how to Im- Im- kind of like implement these things into their services and processes, um, it's going to be a juggle between convenience and security, just like it always has been. But it's going to be a little more unique, just like we've you know had to deal with these new technologies or I guess old now in terms of the the one-time password generators my my auntie used to have to use one a little USB that would generate a code every so often but um I think that as we see true passwordless um authentication be implemented here uh it, it's I think it's going to get a little bit harder before it gets easier but mm-hmm. time will tell and it, it's just behind these these major platform and platforms and these major providers to make sure that that transfers as you know as smooth as possible and by that i mean like we can't really truly sign in without a password until something like you know microsoft and google start to truly implement biometrics or passwordless authentication which is just around the corner Change on the horizon, Canadian government, maybe reactionary instead of proactive. One day we'll get to proactive, I hope. Um, But there it is, Hank the Hacker. Thanks so much for being here, Hank. Thank you so much for having me. This is the Shift Podcast. It's time for us to do Are You Okay With? Are you, are you are you okay 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 are you okay with 877-399-9898 you can share your opinion as well uh are you okay with 39 degrees in humidex in winnipeg right now oh my god nope. oh it's down to 37 
Oh, good. Open the windows. Let the air out. It's only 29 right now. It's a one-degree temperature change from now until the, all of tomorrow. Uh, that heat warning is still in effect, by the way. Okay, are you okay with... We share a story. You let us know if you're okay with it. Uh, les éléphants. And un éléphant. <laughs> yes, well, elephant. I was... Th- I was saying all of the elephant, like the elephants. The, oh, one, and one elephant. Yeah. Uh, Are you okay with are... elephants? Oh, yeah, of course. They're they're amazing animals. I did, however, read about in India, an elephant trampled a woman Yeesh. to death, and then it showed up at her funeral and destroyed the funeral. The same elephant. No. Yes. That's yes. can't be, that can't be a story. No, I saw it. I was going to turn it into an are you okay, but I couldn't. F- I didn't know how to write that. Like, it's pretty brutal. Uh, that's the only time I've ever seen an elephant, like, be kind of angry like that. I guess if you piss an elephant off, it's going to make you aware of Show it. Show up at your funeral. Right? Yeah. And coming at you. Yeah. All right. Um, well, can I tell you something that it's a bad dog dad thing that I do all the time? Drive my dog crazy? Sure. Yeah. Um, I take my socks off, and I put them on my dog's nose, and I always say, "Hi, Harlow, want to be an elephant?" <laughs> she looks like an <laughs> elephant because yeah. <laughs> and then she sits there with the sock hanging off her nose, actually. and she hates it. Yeah, which is That's funny because good. she tries to pull my socks off my feet sometimes, and yet has no desire to have the sock on her nose. Weird. Um, okay. I love elephants, by the way. Favorite animal, absolutely. Yep. If I could uh, do it, I would be going to an elephant reserve. There's a couple of amazing ones, and you can volunteer your time, and you they take care of you there. They teach you, and you basically volunteer for a couple of days at the reserves, and you get to feed the baby elephants with the bottles and all the things, and you literally shovel the crap and do the hard work. It's like working at a barn, but you do it, and it's cool, and um, I think that's neat. I'd like to do that. Are you okay with elephants? You may remember a few weeks ago we discovered the story. We covered the story of Happy the Elephant from the Bronx Zoo. <laughs> from the Bronx Zoo. The non-humans rights group was trying to uh, get the animal the human rights. Remember that story? It was like, mm-hmm. the elephant's a human. Hmm. They claimed Happy was shown evidence of having a conscience and should therefore be considered a person. Well, a judge has decided Happy's future. The Animal Rights Advocacy Group, Non-Human Rights Project, says Happy is the Bronx Zoo's loneliest elephant and should be free. Happy was born in the wild but has been in the Bronx Zoo for 45 years, spending almost the last decade in seclusion. Animal rights advocates call her living quarters a one-acre prison that they say is akin to a human being held in solitary confinement. When we look at the right at issue, which is the right to bodily liberty, which protects autonomy, and Happy is autonomous by scientific proof, uh, she should at a minimum have the same right as a similarly situated individual that also has autonomy. They want happy release to a sanctuary, arguing that in the wild, elephants live in closely bonded families, with females never leaving their herd. The zoo argued through an attorney that happy is neither imprisoned nor a person, but a well-cared-for elephant, respected as the magnificent creature she is. 
<sighs> okay. First of all, let's start with this. Good. Second of all, I, I like pack animals, relationships, all the things. I am a big fan mm. of the elephants. But I don't think it's science when you say science has proven they're autonomous. I think autonomous is not proven through science. I think interpretation leads you to autonomy, right? Like autonomy is a story that we tell ourselves. It's not really a science thing. Anyway, that was from News Nation. While elephants are impressive, the court said they're not entitled to the same liberty rights as humans are. Happy was born in the wild, captured, brought to the U.S. when she was about one. She's lived at the Bronx Zoo since 1977. She's one of two remaining elephants at the zoo, which has said it will eventually end its captive elephant program. Now, some of the elephant programs have big packs and lots of space. In Calgary, Spike had gone to the mm-hmm. uh, place in Washington, and I went to the Washington Zoo, Smithsonian, so I could see Spike, which was really cool to see after seeing him in Calgary. And all of the, um, they've all been reunited there now, I believe. So, yes, let the poor beast have... A family, without a doubt, I don't think he needs a credit card. It's yeah, it's, yeah it, it's like I get what you're trying to say, but what you think that an elephant that's been in the zoo its entire life is going to thrive if you just throw it on a sanctuary? Uh, that maybe, maybe you could argue that, but I don't think you can argue that like... <laughs> happy now qualifies for a driver's license test like you know like we gotta separate we gotta have some boundaries here well and i'm i'm all for animals having feelings having a conscience and all those things i mean i've seen the guilt in my dog's eyes when she does something wrong um and knows that she doesn't i mean seen all those those videos of of dogs when you walk in the room and they try to hide because like they shredded a pillow or whatever they know But that doesn't mean that they're people like we got to keep this in context here. And I'm a fan of the elephants. I say support the elephants, love the elephants. I'll be the guy who will tell you to donate to the elephant places. But that's just my opinion. Anyway, glad to hear happy um, might find a solution that makes happy happy. Happy. Yeah. Happy the elephant. Are you okay with... Are you okay with game shows? I don't feel like we did that right. I don't. Yeah, I don't think we did that right. No, we should do that again. That's a little bit lame. I think we can do it again. All right. Are you okay with game shows, Bob? You're darn right I am. Bob has made a living. Every Bob before me has been a game show host, and now it's my turn. Game shows. That is a hiring prerequisite is your name's got to be Bob if you want to be the Bob on this show. See? I like that. I feel better. That's a way better way to... Yes. To do it, just Sounds in case somebody's like wondering. Absolutely. Uh, join us later this week as we play Game Showy here on The Shift. Okay, what about a game show based on a TV show? Do those ever work? Uh, well, the idea, I think the, the dumbest game show idea that I ever saw that actually kind of worked was when Shazam had that game show where mm. Jamie Foxx hosted it and you had to come on and guess the song. It was, you know, it was funny for like, you know, well, it was kind of the same thing over and over again. Exactly. Right. right? 
So those kinds of game shows, I don't think work. I think you need to have a really, really original idea these days. Mm. Uh, I would agree. I would absolutely agree. I think that they do uh, game shows are fun. I like uh, Howie Mandel's new one bullshit. I like that one. That's I awesome. think that's great. That one's awesome. Um, that's on Netflix, I believe, or is it on yep. TV? That one's on TV. It's Netflix. TV? Netflix? Uh, I think that's great. Um, you know, so game shows are starting to change. What about this, though? What about a game show that's called Squid Game? Oh, that's a very different kind of game show. That's like mm-hmm. a in the TV show Squid Game, that's the kind of game where you don't want to play it. You really don't. Like, you don't want to lose, anyway. You really don't want to lose. So the hit Netflix series, which broke all kinds of records, Squid Game, if you haven't watched Squid Game, here's how it goes. If you've watched it, you get it. But I want to talk to everyone who hasn't seen it. Hundreds of desperate cast-strapped players are invited to compete in a series of children's games that they remember from their youth. Now, these were Korean games because it's a Korean show. So not quite the same as ours, like the basics, like tag and stuff like that. Very similar that way. But they have to play these games from their children. Remember back, how did they win these games and so on? So if they win, they walk away with enough money to pay off all their debts. But if they lose, nobody realizes when they start, but they find out very quickly, if they lose, they die. That show is about to become a real game show for real people. With a gossip around a new Squid Game series, uh, series two, Season two coming, which makes sense why they started talking about this last week again, Ryan, for like the third time mm-hmm. that it was coming back again. Cause we were like, why are they talking about this again? Well, here's why 456 recruits from around the world will play games where the worst fate is going home empty handed, oh. missing out on a $4.56 million prize. Now they do say you get to go home. So, uh, a real life squid game. Where I don't think that you're going to die, but it's no. probably not going to be easy. It's worth noting that Miss uh, YouTuber Mr. Beast did try this last year. I recreated every single set from Squid Game in real life. And whichever one of these 456 people survives the longest wins 456 grand. The first game we're going to play is Red Light, Green Light. And they have 30 minutes to cross the red line on the other side of the huge room. So without further ado, Green Light. Red light. Oh, oh. And as you can see, every single player has a device strapped to them that when they're eliminated, it pops. Uh, Chris, you want to have a chance at one? Red light. Sounds a lot like a gunshot without the context. It does. Red light, green light, the premise was simple, was that it was basically red light, stop, and freeze. Green light, run as fast as you can. And you only had a limited amount of time to get to the other side. So you could not take it too slow. If you ran out of time, everybody got shot. If you moved, you got shot. So you would be green light, run, stop, freeze. And if you wiggled, fell over, whatever, you would get shot in the game. Legitimately on the TV show. Now, the good news is with Mr. Beast, nobody actually died. Good idea, bad idea, Ryan. I think it's a, well, for Netflix, it's an amazing idea. Because if they release that, at the same time as they release season two, people are going to watch season two, fall back in love with the show, and then want more content. And then they're going to watch that. They're going to watch that game show, and then they're going to want more content. So they're going to go back and rewatch season one to see all those games again. So 
Uh, I think this is a very smart move by Netflix. I think the show will be super entertaining. I'm, I imagine they'll probably find some ways to have a little bit of, you know, shock value. Uh, obviously, nothing like what it is like in the real show in terms of like the violence and all that. Um, I think it'd be. I think it'll be entertaining. I, I think it works. The games are objectively simple, which is one of the reasons it works. However, it's worth noting that in the in the show they only played four games, I think, in total. So I Wind wonder if six. they'll come up with some own ideas, yeah. use maybe some from season two, or if it's going to be a really short run. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting. I think it buys them time. And if it's yeah. uh, there's a high standard though, because that TV show was unbelievable. Same thing oh, with the second good. season. So good to watch. Gruesome at times, but so good to watch. Recommended. Thumbs up. Are you okay with Ferrari? Oh, Ferrari. Absolutely. Came in second at the Canadian Grand Prix this weekend. I was hoping for first, but I'll take it. Uh, Ferrari was like, when I was a kid, the first cars that I cared about. Like My dad kind of instilled that in me as to because he worked for Shell. So he had a lot of Ferrari branding around the house. Um but that's where a lot of my appreciation for cars came from is looking at, you know, the engineering into uh, Ferrari and the racing and everything. But, yeah, I think it's the epitome of nice cars. All right. Um, what do you expect to see inside of Italian sports cars like a rich person, expensive coffee, like real expensive coffee, duffel bag with money and drugs? <laughs> Ferrari dealership in B.C. found none of those things in one of their Ferraris last month. Instead, they found a rattlesnake. Yep, Pacific Northwest rattlesnake hitched a ride in a Ferrari from a Soyuz to Vancouver. Well, that snake returned home on Sunday in a much slower family vehicle. Wow, what a surprise that would be. This is Kristen Robinson. After a more than week-long stay at Dudney Animal Hospital, Enzo, the aptly named rattlesnake, is going back to the desert. He's got an amazing taste in vehicles, but unfortunately he came in a Ferrari, but he's going to be going home in a Tacoma. Well, this is a once-in-a-lifetime experience for us. The Wildlife Rescue Association of BC delivered the race car reptile to Dr. Adrian Walton after its helpline received a call from Vancouver's Ferrari dealership, which had spotted the snake slithering under supercars in its garage. Thanks to a microchip... He's actually a species at risk as well. The patient was traced to the Incomeep Snake Research Project in Asuyas. The poor snake was probably just looking for a nice corner to hide in and then ended up going on the ride of his life. The Ferrari dealership was in the area recently on a road trip for a track event in Oliver. The Northern Pacific rattlesnake, considered a species at risk, somehow slid into one of the luxury rides and never looked back. I think it's absolutely incredible that he was able to survive the drive because Ferraris do get really hot and it makes me really wonder what part of the car he was in. In snake style, it was an apparently stealth passenger until it surfaced in Vancouver. Being able to take it back to the exact spot it came from means that his chance of survival is so much higher. Wow. Uh, yeah, at least he wasn't under it too soon. No, under the Ferrari. No. Uh, let's acknowledge Enzo's name, first of all. Thumbs up. Yeah. Well done. Love that. Enzo rode Sunday in a container equipped with heating pads to keep him nice and warm. Walton and his family monitored his temperature using a meat thermometer. <laughs> Ouch. What? Um, <laughs> Just in the general area, stop. not inside the snake. Oh, 
Jeez. All right. Um, he had additional heating and cooling pads at the ready if he needed at a Soyuz. He'd be dropped off at a rattlesnake rescue facility and taken back to the desert he calls home. <laughs> I, I love the name Enzo, but it is a rattlesnake, though. I mean, I guess I had a wasp fly in my office today, and I didn't kill it. I tried to save it. But I don't know. It's, you don't have to save all the animals, do you? Like couple of them, the scary ones, the real ugly ones, like, they can go, can't they? I like snakes. I think snakes are cool. Yeah, but a rattlesnake. You're telling me you wouldn't pee a little if you open up your trunk? Like, oh, the yeah, boot? but my first instinct wouldn't be to hit it with a shovel. I'd call someone that would know what to do about it. No, that would be exactly your first instinct. It'd be like, give me a shovel. Oh, maybe I don't have to kill it. <laughs> I just don't think I'm winning a fight against a rattlesnake, whether I'm armed or not. Ugh. I would definitely pee a little. This is the Shift Podcast. Good morning. Thank you very much for listening to the Shift. I'm Shane Hewitt. There have been so many storylines this weekend that have come out of Ukraine. In fact, I don't want to say that it's been dry or quiet or any of those things of late, but it does seem like the the news focus has shifted. And I don't know what that's from. I don't know if that's from people sort of calling and, and asking and saying, hey, what's, what's happening, what's been going on? Um, but it did seem to be dry for a little while. Um, but it looks like uh, people are starting to talk about it again, which is good news for us now. Uh, Sheldon, we all good, bud? Awesome. Uh, so we were not able to connect our, our typical way with the technology today, but we have Stefan Berko uh, joining us here on the phone for the conversation. Now, Stefan, this is, uh, you gave us a bit of a treat there to let us know that we couldn't get you on the, the normal connection. You popped into our Zoom call that we do the show on. So it was nice to see you walking around. What city are you walking around? Uh, I'm uh, I'm in Kiev. I mean, it's a Excellent. Kiev suburbs in you know, in Kiev. Yes. Nice. This is beautiful. So I'm glad to see you. Thanks for popping in. What a nice treat to see your face uh, through the Zoom call. That's pretty awesome. Uh, here, it's already uh, earlier on Monday morning where you are this weekend in Canada. We celebrated Father's Day, and based on the uh, news that I read about your president uh, Vladimir Zelensky uh, sending out a Father's Day message, same thing for you guys this weekend. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's not really, you know, commonly celebrated as a Father's Day. But uh, yes, yesterday uh, we we got some, you know, greetings from our officials. So that must be extra special for you. When we chatted with you last time, you had uh, just reunited with your 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 wife and your your child back in Kiev. You moved back to your to your home. So a little bit more special now. You've had some time to settle in. How are you feeling? Uh, it's uh, it's great to be home. Um, it's great to wake up every morning and see a you know family together. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's always uh, you you you're kind of trying to get this uh, feeling that everything is back to normal. But because war is still going on, it's uh, it's kind of mixed feelings every day. Mm-hmm. Now, there's been an awful lot more in the news, and we chatted, you know, last week about how 
some of the news has tapered down in the conversation about Ukraine. There seems to be an awful lot that's uh, come back up again, and I don't know if that's just convenient or if people are um, paying more attention or what's been going on, but we've seen a lot more conversation about what you've been going through. I thought I would start with what's the most uh, prominent conversation that Ukrainians, your friends, your colleagues, your coworkers, uh, are talking about about the war. What is what is the big the big one that everyone's talking about? You know, Shane, last uh, week was a sad week because uh, we got news about some uh, some very young and very bright soldiers that died on the front lines and. Uh, just this Saturday, I attended funeral of Roman Ratoshny. And I remember the last time we, we talked, I, I told you that there is some bad news, and I hope this guy is uh, was captured, not killed. But unfortunately, he was killed by Russians. And uh, he was only 24. He was a young activist uh, fighting for uh, environment issues here in Kiev. Um, and uh, his, his loss was... Uh, his death was like a, you know, a hard hit for uh, every young, uh, and not even only young uh, person here in Kiev, because he was uh, very active. He was fighting uh, for uh, justice reform, and that's why me and my colleagues, we, we had connection with him. So I would say that this week, uh, the main topic is these, uh, these deaths of young Ukrainians who, who are best of, of our uh, generation and are dying in this war. And uh, probably the hardest thing is to uh, comprehend that this is inevitable. And uh, this is what will be happening for another few months, maybe years. Uh, it must be heartbreaking for you uh, to see that and go through that. That must be incredibly grounding of all the things that go on when it really comes home like that. Yeah, it's true. So as I said, it's like you're happy that you're together with your family. Uh, the sun is shining. The weather in Kiev is great. And at the same time, you don't hear the shelling, but uh, you know the news and you attend the funerals and you hear how many people are injured and killed. And this is devastating. Saw some stats that saying up to two thousand international volunteers have possibly been killed as well. I mean, these are these are big numbers now. These are impactful numbers. Uh, not saying I don't mean to diminish that they weren't before, but the, they're really uh, they're really really adding up. Severodonetsk is still uh, in the crosshairs. What are you hearing about that? Yeah, there is a really hard uh, fighting uh, in and around Severodonetsk. Uh, the, the, the reason for uh, for uh, these high casualties is that Russia has 10 times more artillery and firepower concentrated on that small, uh, uh, you know, part of the front. And uh, what they do, they lack infantry. So what they do, they, they shell, shell the, the coordinates. They don't care whether there are people or not, civilians or whatsoever. They shell, shell, shell constantly until there is nothing left. And uh, then their infantry enters the territory. And uh, Ukrainian armed forces lack uh, these, uh, you know, firepower. We lack ammunition. We hope for Western support. 
but it seems that uh, it's not coming as fast as we expected. And still, there's uh, so, there are some countries hesitating to support us because they're afraid that if Russia will be losing, or at least if Russia will not be, you know, succeeding in pushing the front lines, they will escalate even further. But uh, you know, these talks about escalation and uh, firepower uh, supply for Ukraine. Uh, the more we uh, wait for this support the more our young and brightest uh, people are dying so yeah the situation is really hard i can hear the uh i can hear the weight in your voice as we chat about that i can i can hear it today that there's there's a lot there and there's there's a lot going on there and i felt particularly frustrated and i'm curious how it lands for you is when this all started four months ago that you know the the phrase about airplanes and technology and stuff that was batted about was oh, it would take four months to train everybody that takes too long we can't do that and here we are four months later and it certainly would be timely to have the help of some of these airplanes and whatnot um today four months later if you will i realize that's not that's a big assumption and not necessarily accurate 100 percent. but it certainly would be nice to having to have that come in it must be hard to look back at four months ago and even feel like a lifetime ago or just yesterday or maybe both? Mm, you see, it's both uh, a good uh, perspective of four, four months and bad perspective. Because on one side, we were on the brink of losing our state. And I'm not, you know, over-exaggerating. Uh, Kiev was at the risk of being captured by Russians. So when you look back, it's like, oh, my God, we, we, I mean, our armed forces did, you know, impossible. But at the same time, I agree. Uh, maybe some analysts were thinking that this war would not last so long. Uh, because uh, from, from why, what I heard, experts, uh, military experts are saying that uh, uh, today, uh, conventional wars uh, last not more than two months. Now we have four months. And I agree, if we have... Uh, started this training of Ukrainian uh, pilots and Ukrainian uh, uh, soldiers that operate uh, firearms supplied by uh, Western uh, countries, NATO countries, we would uh, have right now uh, some balance on, on the front. Uh, so I hope that this will teach uh, both, uh, you know, Ukrainian armed forces and, uh, and Ukrainian officials and uh, officials of Western democracies that we have to act fast, despite everything, because the front lines, the front line is not just a line on the map. There are people living in Severodonetsk and Lysychansk, who, if these cities are captured, will uh, be under, uh, you know, immense pressure from the Russian soldiers. Some will be killed, some will be filtrated, as they say, and... Uh, just this week, we got some news about uh, some stories about how these filtration camps are working. People are, uh, you know, electrocuted. And uh, this is just, you know, when, when you read these stories, it's, uh, the, 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 the memories of some biggest atrocities of the World War II come, uh, come to my mind. So when we're talking about uh, supporting Ukraine to, to fight back Russia, we have to... and, and you know, when we hear some 
some uh, voices saying Ukraine has to succeed some territories and then to stop the war. But it's not territories. We have to succeed people who live on these territories. And, and we'll have more butchers like we had uh, just a few months ago. So there's just no other choice than to support Ukraine militarily and hope that we will uh, stop Russia and fight our, our, our people back. Because it's not about territories. It's about people. It is about people. Um, let's talk about people. Um, there's some stories that uh, there was that medic who was captured three months ago. I think it was in Mariupol. And uh, she's been freed, I believe. Uh, and uh, so yeah. that's good news. Now, that's only one person, but in the spirit of celebrating something positive, that is one good thing that's come of this. Your president, though, has been going on a tour. He's been to Mikolaev. He's been to Odessa. Uh, exciting, I suppose, to and, and confidence building to see him uh, walking around and, and, and doing those things, but still probably a little bit nervous for Ukrainians to see him out and about. He's been such a leader. Yeah, he's, he's been showing a good, uh, you know, sign for people on the front lines. Because when you when you see your president uh, not not hesitating to to come to the very front of the of the fighting, uh, despite your political position, whether you supported this president or not during the elections, it's the leader of your country, and if he's showing that he is brave enough, uh, then you have to be brave. And all of us as well, because uh, it's it's like a sign of, uh, you know, uh, spiritual support, I would say. So I'm happy that he's doing that because uh, people, especially those people who live uh, not far from the front lines, they have to feel that the, the, the government, the country, uh, uh, support them, feel their pain and is doing everything to, to help them. Stephen Berko is joining us from Kiev, Ukraine, on the phone, and I, I'm asking this question not to ask for your personal politics, but it was my next uh, one. It's almost like you're reading my my mind here. Is what are the politics like now in Ukraine? I mean, there were people that did not vote for Zelensky. They thought the other guy was better, right? I mean, there's most certainly you know those political divides that have always been there. Four months later, uh, in the very beginning, they seem to be rather unified politically in Ukraine. Has it continued to be that way? Again, not your personal opinion uh, was not what I'm asking for, but your observation of politics in general. Um, I agree that a few months ago, uh, our politics uh, and politicians were more united because they felt the threat of uh, losing the country uh, and losing the capital, Kiev. And now, I mean, I would say that there is no political landscape because uh, um, how could you debate on some policies uh, if there is war uh, and if the parliament is closed? I mean, it's working, it's operating, but it's not broadcasting. The parliamentary committees are, uh, you know, uh, not broadcasting. You cannot attend them. So basically, the 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 the, the space for public dialogue uh, of some policies is very, very narrow. Uh, still, I mean, as probably in any country, uh, politicians uh, very often are, uh, you know, sometimes selfish, sometimes trying to use the situation for their own benefit. So, I mean, Ukraine is not a, a, in any way different from that. 
but uh, I think still everyone understands the the, 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 the level of threat, and this uh, level of threat uh, kind of uh, makes everyone think before they act. I hope so. That's for sure. All right. So here we are tiptoeing our way. It's almost summertime. Stepan Berko in Kiev when we were saw you there on on the Zoom call. Um, Ryan was very grateful to see your mustache in person, by the way. So thank you for that. Uh, if you don't know, go to shiftheads.ca on our Facebook group. You can see uh, Stepan's picture there with his, his super handsome mustache. Uh, everything looks very green behind you. It looks very summer and beautiful. The conversation about crops and agriculture and exports has been strong in the last few weeks. Is there any change there in regards to uh, being able to get access to ports or conversation about what that might look like in a couple months? Um, I'm not an expert on, you know, uh, global food chain or uh, military uh, stuff. Uh, but uh, from what I hear from Ukrainian uh, experts, they're saying that there is little to no chance to unblock Odessa and other ports, Ukrainian ports. Uh, so what we should do is to try to uh, enhance the roads that we're using right now, which is... Uh, uh, Danube River and uh, rail um, roads uh, that are uh, going through Poland and other European countries. Unfortunately, uh, last yeah, last week uh, was like a conference, some economic forum in in Russia, and uh, uh, when President Putin was uh, talking about this issue, and uh, some of his. Um, I think it was uh, like a lady who uh, was moderating the discussion, and she's uh, the head of the Russian media, Russia Today. She said, we hope for uh, this global famine that will influence the Western countries not to support Ukraine. So it, it, it's like an, an obvious evidence that Russia's plan is to organize this famine and then to push uh, global migration crisis in hope that this will influence uh, the stance of the of the Western uh, countries uh, not to support U- Ukraine. Unfortunately, uh, it seems that uh, we're we're stuck with this situation for for a long time until until the war is over. And I mean, when, by by the war is over, I mean not just some ceasefire because ceasefire will not do anything. Um, this, this could be for years. Until I don't know, Russia changes uh, uh, its leadership or its policies, and I I see no uh, uh, no way that, that 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 could happen in years, even maybe three to five years. Yeah, you know, it was one of the uh, things we talked about weeks and weeks ago that 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 squeeze on African food was going to be a big problem and was speculated to be one of the motivating factors of of what they were trying to do. And uh, it's one of those things where you start to see it unfold and you're like, ah, oh, man, I wish I hadn't got that one right. But it seems to be the case. Absolutely. It's remarkable what's going on. I acknowledge the fact that you're back home and you are with your family, that you keep investing this time with us, step in and let us know what is going on inside your world. I, I truly appreciate you for working so hard to keep in touch with me, too, and uh, let me know what's going on. So thank you, sir, and thanks for being here. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.